Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode 13 and the end of the first season of Staying Alive with me, Jesse Smith, a podcast about how to make a career out of creativity. Thank you so much for tuning in once again to Staying Alive. The last 13 weeks have been so much fun and a welcome release from the monotony of lockdown here in London. And it's been a real pleasure to have so many great conversations with some seriously inspiring creative people. And I hope you've all enjoyed the conversations I've been having. After this episode, I'll be taking a few weeks break from the pod whilst I recharge my batteries and begin recording season two. In the meantime, and if you haven't already, you can go back and listen to all the previous episodes with my other awesome guests completely free wherever you get your podcasts. So the final guest of the series was at the top of my list when I decided to start the show. I've been lucky enough to watch him up close and personal with Iggy Pop, as well as work alongside him. And I can honestly say he's one of the most special guitar players I've ever had the privilege of working with. His CV speaks for itself, having played with not just Iggy, but as a long-time collaborator with David Bowie, Mick Jagger, Morrissey, Sinead O'Connor, and even Paul McCartney. He's as humble as he is funny, and it's a real pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Kevin Armstrong. I'm okay. I mean, this situation doesn't change a, a great deal for me in terms of home life, you know, because yeah. I I quite often work alone in, in my studio. So um, that hasn't really changed. And, uh, and I am at home a lot. When I'm not on the road, I'm kind of at home and I have a nice big garden. I'm really lucky and the family here. So it's not changed a great deal for me. I'm very, I realise how lucky I am really to have, yeah. to have that, you know. I can't I imagine what place, it's like. Kev. <laughs> yeah, you've been down there a few times for parties. Yeah. Things, you know, uh, we have a big garden, as you know, and it's like it's. I even uh, I've even put um, on the Thursday night when they have the clap for the NHS. I've kind of put two hundred watt amplifiers outside the studio, leaned them up to the sky, turned them right up, and played "Ode to Joy." <laughs> Amazing <laughs> for the neighbourhood. Uh, that's been quite funny. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, of course, I live near the sea as well, so. I can walk by the sea, which is a great uh, calming, you know, it's a beautiful thing to do, to be able to do. Absolutely, yeah. Every yeah. time we come down to yours, when we're driving back up the, what's that What's that single track road that just takes forever? The, uh, the A21. Uh, the A12, is it? Oh, yeah, the A, no, the H, it's the A21, yeah. That's the one, yeah. I, I'm always just like, oh, we, sh- we should think about moving down here, but we're just not quite ready yet, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I wasn't ready for a long time. I, I did like living in London for the longest time. Yeah. And then there comes a certain point where you think, well, do we really have to be here? And the answer was no. And yeah. uh, other things, other family things pulled us down here. But I, I've never regretted moving out of London, I have to yeah. say. You know, at my, at my age, it's a much better lifestyle down here for, for me. It suits me better. 
you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And obviously, you, you yeah. were in the middle of a, a tour when this pandemic hit, weren't you? So yeah, well, that's the worst thing is is losing all your work all of a sudden as a musician. You know, uh, any yeah. any 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 way of making a living that that kind of um, relies on loads of people all clumping together in a small space <laughs> or yeah, even a big yeah. space uh, means that you, it, we're all in trouble. So, yeah, I was on a two-week... I was on a six-week tour with Mike Garson and all the all Bowie alumni musicians mm. um, with uh, Corey Glover from Living Colour singing and uh, Joe Sumner, Sting's son, and, uh, you know, some uh, Judith Hill, some great singers as well. And it's all as an all-Bowie tour, really. Yeah, um, all bow music, and it was it was it was just starting to get into a groove. You know when you know this when you're on tour, it takes a couple of weeks for the band to really settle in, sure. and it, for it for it to, to it to start it just starts going up a level, and it was st- really doing that. We've done some great gigs, and then all of a sudden we were we started off in California, and then going up the West Coast, we seemed to be sort of following in the wake of the worst hotspots of of outbreak of coronavirus that, that was happening ahead yeah. of us and you were we were on our way th- it. <laughs> well we were probably spreading it but we definitely we, I, <laughs> well there is that but i think we were probably you know i picked it up i think i've had a dose of it i'm hoping i've had a dose of it of course there's no way mm. of telling but um uh, I did have a sort of a uh, fever and a, a thing that knocked me back for a week when I got back here. And it was a shame because uh, this just city started closing down in front of us. And we were mm. all being kind of optimistic on a tour bus, you know, living the life. And then all of a sudden we realised that, well, there was a couple of gigs cancelled in front of us, but we can go into Canada and do that. And then you can go across to New York and it'll all be over by then. You know, and of course, everything just shut down. We didn't realise the entire global civilization would collapse around our ears yeah. in about two days. Uh, I guess you were lucky I managed to get home, really. Well, I managed to get a flight out of Seattle, out of SeaTac, uh, uh, with 28 people on board a plane. I mean... Mm. There's nobody. Uh, and there were yeah, no yeah. checks coming in. So I just came in. So I got home. But then, of course, uh, it's a shame because that wasn't, uh, you know, I do, as you know, I do tour with tours with Iggy Pop as well. And, and with Iggy, everything's done on a really kind of quite a sort of um, luxury level because yeah. he's a living legend and he can do it that way. But with Mike, we were on tour buses. We had two tour buses with a crew and we had hotels and stuff booked in advance. And, and, and he took a hit on that. I mean, I feel sorry for, for Mike in a way. As he's, mm. He would have lost four weeks of advanced tour preparations and he would yeah, have had to pay for that. Expensive, Hard. isn't it? I mean, touring expensive. expensive, yeah. I was just going to say, how, how were the gigs themselves, obviously, up to that point? You said you sort of just got cooking and... Are you are you enjoying still playing that brilliant music? Ah, oh, well, yes. I mean, it was the first time I played with Jerry Leonard and Carmine Rojas mm. and Alan Childs, a great rhythm section, and uh, and Jerry's a great guitar player. And, of course, Mike Garson is inspirational, as you know. And uh, it was, well, we just, you know, we rehearsed in this giant place in Burbank with great big carpets and about half an acre of space to rehearse in, and that was wonderful. Yeah. And, yeah. and then we started going out on the road. We were doing small theatres and clubs like the, the Belly Up in uh, San Diego and... and uh, Beautiful sort of uh, smallish clubs and theatres. And the atmosphere was fantastic. I mean, it was just, they were, the gigs were great. I mean, it was just, it was such a lovely tour to be on from that point of view because there's such a lot of affection for Bowie's 
oeuvre still. And the, the fact that we'd all played with him gives it some mm. kind of thing that, you know, where people will buy a ticket to see that because it's, it sounds the way it's supposed to. And uh, it was going really well. I was really, really enjoying it. Uh, such mm. a shame that we we had to can it, but I, there is some idea of rescheduling it and going on. I think I don't think you'll be able to stop Mike Garson touring Bowie music forever. He he, no. he's the kind of cust- <laughs> well, he's the kind of custodian of it. He, he having been with David since 1973 as a live musician, it's his kind of life's mission to keep that going, and 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 all power to him, you know, for that. Sure, and you, you can tell how kind of emotionally connected he is to it. I've, I saw the tour actually um, with, with my other friend Slicky playing guitar, um, who obviously you've now uh, replaced for this tour. Uh, yeah, um, and it was it was brilliant. I loved it, you know. But you can tell Mike Mike kind of eulogizes over David, doesn't he? And he kind of you can tell he just heart and soul just love loves the guy and the music and. It's sort of a celebration, isn't it? It truly is a Bowie celebration. Well, that's what that's what it's billed as celebrating, and that's the wonderful thing about it. Having seen it, you know that it's a shared kind of bond around Bowie for the musicians and the audience alike. It isn't a kind of oh, here here it is, we're up here doing this, and you're you're sort of receiving it. It's like a sh- it is like a sort of shared experience of of celebrating an artist like him, and mm. he was such a wide ranging. Is such a huge range he had, just given the fact that watching people like Slicky and Garson playing together, who are worlds apart musically, but totally. still, it, it works, you know, in the context of Bowie's music. Amazing, you know, really, yeah. How was that first meeting, David Bowie? How did you get that gig in the first place? Uh, well, I was signed to EMI Records in the, in the mid-'80s, and uh, although it wasn't to be my destiny... I, I sort of uh, went through the sort of mincer of being signed and having a lawyer suddenly and a load of money and a load of people and, a, and an accountant and a manager and all that stuff around me. And it all went tits up within about a year because I wasn't really ready for it. And they, you know, they weren't, they were putting a red line through new signings if they hadn't had a hit within six months kind of thing, you know, usual mm. high turnover, high investment kind of 80s uh, music busy so there was one guy emi who kind of liked me and he after we split with emi and i was left with kind of wondering what to do with myself um he just phoned me up and said oh look there's there's this there's this secret session at abbey road going on and it's somebody i can't tell you who it is but you can just take a guitar along there and play and you can thank me later sort of thing Right. And that was like, <laughs> and it was literally like completely out of the blue, lucky break like that, that I turned up with a guitar at Abbey Road. I, I met with band members who were there already. One was uh, the drummer, Neil Conti uh, from Prefab Sprout, Nick Plytus from Rugulator, Matthew Seligman, the late, great Matthew Seligman, who has just mm. passed away, which is a, a source of great sadness to us uh, right now. But anyway, uh, and then... We all we were all literally in the studio discussing who's coming. <laughs> we didn't know. We, right. We, we, but Bowie was on the list. But you know, could it be Bowie? You know, we didn't know. So yeah. We had no idea who was going to show up. It was just quite exciting. And then, of course, he came in and said, "Hi, I'm David." <laughs> <laughs> as if like you know yeah right we need that information yeah and, um, <laughs> but he was great straight straight away we struck up a little rapport uh, over various uh, things and uh, and it, it led to a 10 year relationship on and off 
which was always happy and always easy to work with and obviously so fruitful for me that it's kind of set you know it's given me a certain kudos within the business in in a way deserved or not it just does it just does because you because you've touched you've sat next to greatness like that and it it really isn't a a lovely gift to have you know oh it's definitely deserved mate and is is that um was the first thing you recorded with him absolute beginners was that the first thing well it actually it was a song called that's motivation which is uh yeah uh it's like a complex kind of twisted up jazz song which is which is in the movie absolute beginners and it's it's a scene i don't know whether you've seen the film there's a scene with him and um what's his name the uh I can't remember the other actor's name. But anyway, they're jumping, they're doing a dance routine on these giant typewriters and stuff. And it's called That's Motivation, where Bowie's in a suit and he's kind of, it's a sort of Thatcherite peon to kind of achievement, really. A bit of a weird song. And he taught it to us in little chunks because it's quite complicated. He didn't know whether we could handle learning the whole thing or something. So he, he said, oh, here's the first eight bars. And he played us a little demo. And uh, so we'd learn eight bars and then we'd literally play the eight bars onto tape and then he'd say, right, stop, here's the next eight bars and have the engineer. In those days, you had to drop the tape in, yeah. you know, play it. <laughs> and he had the whole band kind of dropping in chunks of this song. So it was a very weird first way, first thing to do where, oh, we're not learning a song, we're learning little chunks of a song and then little trying to bits. drop them in in time with ourselves onto a tape. And it, it, it was kind of disjointed. It... it, it there was method in his madness because after a while he he kind of loosened up and realized what we could do and what we couldn't but anyway we did that and assembled that song and then he there was another hour on the clock for the studio and he just said oh well, i've got there's there's a there's let's not waste the time i've got this other idea for a song for the theme of the thing absolute beginners and uh, but it's not finished and i said well i had the confidence to say well, show us, show us what you've got, you know, and mm. uh, see if we can. And he just, we just sat down with a couple of acoustic guitars and and it, and a you know a notepad, and he showed me what he had, which was a fragment of it, and and I realised that he had most of it really. If I so I was able to say, well, maybe help with the structure, double this bit, make this bit longer, maybe put a little tr- turn around here, and I just got stuck in. And we finished the song in in a half an hour, put it down, learnt the whole thing, and it sounded absolutely brilliant straight away. I mean, mm. it was one of those magic things where uh, I think everybody realised that that was that was quite a good song. Pretty oh, much it's a brilliant away. song. I mean, David, I'm sure you've seen the clip of him at Glastonbury saying, "This is my favourite love song from the '80s," and then he plays "Absolute <laughs> Beginners." You know, and it's just it's just ama- an amazing, amazing song. I mean. All that happening. as a late as a late Bowie song, it's pretty good, isn't it? You know, because there were lots, yeah. lots of uh, there were lots of criticism of him around that time and about maybe it was a weak spot for songs and the rest of it. But that does that does stand out that song. And I think from my point of view, he just recognised that maybe I could contribute something to what he was doing. So we mm. can, it, so he then it, then it continued led to a continuing relationship. It was a, just a lucky break that I was able to help him finish a song, you know. Uh, what, what, what did you do that night, Kev, when you got home and you, you, you just, <laughs> that had happened, you'd written that song with David Bowie and you just oh, done that I don't session. remember. I don't remember even thinking about the import, import of it in a way. It, mm. I just don't remember it clearly. I mean, obviously it was an exciting 
moment. But yeah. I, I think I was young and full of piss and vinegar and sort of uh, part of me thought, well, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, you know, it yeah, was like yeah. a sort of, uh, it was like a, a conf- overconfident, hubristic thing where you just think, um, well, I've always, you know, I, be, I was born for this. This is my, you know, yeah, and it was yeah. a ridiculous thing to think. But it, when I was young, I'd sort of, uh, when I was very young, I always imagined myself in these situations. I kind of visualised myself, you know, I would be a, a well-known musician or I'd be an artist or something like that. And mm. um, it just sort of happened. And I... So I, it, part of it was like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Even though I'd been a Bowie fan before that, my brother, who died in 79, I got to work with David in 85. And uh, my brother, who was a huge Bowie fan, had died in mm. a motorbike accident in 79. And I think I thought about that. You yeah, know, that yeah. That my brother, who was a year younger than me, we'd grown up, you know, introducing each other to various bits of music and all that and he he definitely was the bowie fan he was down the record shop on the morning of release wow uh, to get the albums so that must have been bittersweet for you you know just thinking it was a little it was very poignant to think oh i wish he would he would have absolutely loved it to to know that you know i'd made it to working with David, you know. Yeah, sure. So of course, it was, of course it was exciting, and it continued to be exciting. I mean, at the end of the Abbey Road sessions, I think he'd said to me, uh, oh, I've been asked to do this thing by Bob Geldof. Um, you know, it's, a chari- <laughs> it's a little charity concert. <laughs> and would you like to help me put a band together for it? And, and I said, of course, yeah. Uh, so there was that, you know, and that led on to him, uh, you know, um, calling me one night and saying, um, oh, I've got this extra idea for this concert, you know, we're going to make a little record. Um, and this was like between when you we did the demos at Abbey Road and there was a session booked at Westside Studios with Clive Langer to do the final recordings for the soundtrack of the film. Right. Mm. So it was during this period in between meeting him and doing the demos and a couple of weeks later being booked in to do the actual recordings, the, the finished thing that he called me and said, Oh, I'm, first of all, we're doing this concert, you know? And secondly, um, I've got this idea for doing something extra for the concert, a little record. Would you come and meet me in, uh, in, in Wardour street and bring an acoustic guitar at like 10 o'clock at night? I said, okay. So of course, you know, it's intriguing, isn't it? You know, so I pitch up at this place in Wardour Street, knock on the door. Somebody lets me in and I go downstairs and there's this little office with a pot plant and a sofa kind of thing. And I, I sit there. He says, just wait here. So I'm sitting there and in walks Bowie with Mick Jagger. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, so my jaw's on the floor and I'm kind of just, all right, OK, well, it's, Mick, it's, it's Mick and Dave, you know. And then they wanted to work out dancing in the street. Yeah, uh, because that was that was his idea to do to add on, you know, the record of dancing in the street to to mm. to the to Live Aid. Um, so we we just routined it. Me and Dave and Mick routined it on a sofa in a tiny little office in Wardour Street. As and then you he do. said, yeah, as you do. And then he said to me, um, uh, well, when we get to the sessions at the weekend, don't tell the band that Mick's coming. Just we'll do the. Absolute beginners and that's motivation sessions, and then just teach them this right at the end, and uh, that was a good gag, you know, because everybody was <laughs> excited anyway <laughs> to work with David, and we worked with him, and 
We worked with Gil Evans, who was there on the day. I don't know whether you know who that is, Jesse. I don't, Kev, if I'm honest. OK, Gil Evans, uh, older uh, jazz fans will, will know this. Gil Evans was the arranger who did Porgy and Bess, Sketches of Spain and stuff with right. Miles Davis. He was basically wow. the, big, the guy who did all the big band arrangements with Miles Davis. And mm. he did the arrangement for That's Motivation. So, so Gil Evans was in there with a big band. Uh, recording and we, we we joined in with that and did, did that's motivation and then of course at the end of the session I said oh David's got this other thing he wants to do so let's uh, learn it and here it is it's just a version of dancing in the street so we knocked it up in about five minutes and of course Jagger walks in with Jade Jagger his daughter <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and every and the band were like fucking hell <laughs> bet, and then yeah. It was a very exciting day because you had you you did have Jerry Dammers in there and Rick Wakeman was around and and Gil Evans in a big band and then David and then Mick Jagger and everybody was in and out of the studio all day with these people and it was it was very highly charged and exciting that session that day and then yeah, in yeah. the evening in the evening they said oh we're making this video for this as well dancing in the street Everybody get, we've just got cabs outside. We'll just go over to Docklands where we're filming it and just all come over and have a drink and watch it going on, you know. So we, we were present even at the most embarrassing video in the history of human It's <laughs> Such a ridiculous music video, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's funny, you isn't it? Because you look back, <laughs> go on. I was just going to say, you must have seen the the version knocking about with where they've uh, taken all the music out and just added sound effects. Have you seen that? Well, if you do, to be fair, if you do that with any music performance, it looks terrible, doesn't it? I well, mean, that's true. Almost, that is true. You know what but I that mean? That one's particularly funny. <laughs> that one is particularly excruciating, <laughs> given the fact that it is the campest most ridiculous thing they were just trying to out camp each other I yeah. but, but the marvelous thing is about stars of that caliber is they can afford a, a you know a, a, a ridiculous day when they do something that's really embarrassing it doesn't matter in a long career like that and they both were aware of that they they were both really winding each other up being you know camp at one point they said oh shall we call maureen mick goes shall we call maureen <laughs> David goes, do you think we should? And they were talking about Elton John. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Anyway, I, that was, that was, obviously, <laughs> that was great. Yeah, it was really great. Uh, so I've been, I don't, that was my big, big lucky break in life was meeting David because obviously it leads on to all sorts of other things. People want to. Of course. Yeah, they want to do, they want to do things with you. And, and, uh, and I've had a, a, a lucky break with that. Definitely. <laughs> I'd like, if if possible, Kev, I'd like to just go back to the beginning a little bit and just just talk about um, local heroes um, because in in sort of doing research yeah. for this, I went and had a listen and I actually really loved it. And it was really good to hear you hear your, you singing and of, of course again Matthew's bass playing on that's just brilliant. And it it was yeah, kind of how it was kind of very kind of angsty post punk rock band basically, right? Is that how you describe it? Quite politically I driven guess. and. Yes, it was. It was. It was my sort of um, conscious attempt to to be an indie artist, and it was my yeah. first attempt to do that. Really, just to go. Okay, I want to do something that's 
that's really alternative and really angry and it kind of reflects the way I feel about life. And I listen to it now. And to be honest, I cringe a little at the at the angry little person on that record. Do but you? I can I but I love the fact that people like it, even though I don't relate to it, you know, so strongly anymore. I do yeah. obviously um I mean, I do get I do get letters about it. I still get letters about it. And uh, uh, there is actually now that Matthew, you know, just for your listeners benefit, Matthew Seligman, the bass player on that that record was a 40 year uh, close friend of mine and colleague on various, you know, Thomas Dolby projects and Bowie and local heroes and everything. And he, he just died of coronavirus a couple of weeks ago. So it's still very raw. And when I do hear that. Uh, I get I get quite emotional from the point of view of hearing hearing him play. Mm. There was one little reunion we did. Do you remember when um, uh, Kate and Wills got married? Yes. Right. A royal wedding. It was about four years, four or five years ago or something. No, it was a bit longer, six, seven years I think, ago. I think it was, wasn't it like 2011 Even, or something? Because I remember I was doing a quite a special gig for me that day. It I could remember. well have been 2011, so it was like, uh, yeah, so nearly eight years ago. And then we had a Rocal Heroes reunion. Me, Kim and Matthew got together, wow. the original trio, got together in my studio. And there's one track we finished out of that, which uh, we, we renamed the, the, the band Commoner because of the royal wedding. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and there's, it's a track I want to I wanna put out some sometime, and I'm going to do that. Uh, I don't know mm. whether... Um, it's relevant, but I have a, a solo album that I did finish a year ago, and it's out. Uh, I yeah, it's totally relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, it's it, it's called <laughs> it, it's called Run, and it's got my Bowie co-writes and Morrissey co-writes on it, and it's a kind of singer-songwriter album that I've I finished myself. But I'm trying to do another one, and I think I might um, include the Commoner track as a as a kickoff point. Uh, for for a new for a new solo record, so I'm going to do that. And if anybody's interested in that run thing, it is it's called Run. It's by Kevin Armstrong, and, it, and it's on um, iTunes, CD Baby, Bandcamp, and all that. Or if you find me on Facebook, I can I actually just post them out to people if they um, yeah. Well, definitely, me. I'll put a link in the description of the pod, Kevin. I, I really That's rec- very I really kind rec- of you. Recommend uh, that people go and buy it. I've got my copy at home, and um, it's a great <laughs> record. It's quite a diverse record, isn't it? I mean, that I love that well, track. It's a- um, Dog ate my gyro. It's brilliant. It's like uh, uh, some people like that. It's great. It sort of starts off with one nylon guitar, uh, exactly. And quite sort of AMSR kind of uh, vibe, and then it turns into a complete Brian. Uh, Brian Wilson orchestral epic by the end. It does, uh, and it's got like Radiohead in there, and you know, there's this suddenly this really heavy guitar kind of kicks in, and there's some really beautiful slide guitar on that tune as well, and, and as well along with sort of some really sweet vocals and harmonies and stuff in it. It's cool, man. It's really, really good. Well, it album. wasn't the the thing about Run is it's it wasn't conceived as a as an album even of itself. It was basically my own. Uh, projects which I'd done over a period of like five to six years just in the studio songs I'd written things I did so there's a lot of things in there. there's a lot of you know for a guy my age you can hear bits of like you say Radiohead but also bits of Pink Floyd and bits of Bob Dylan and bits of Paul mm. McCartney and bits of, there's all sorts of influences going back to my youth and as I during this lockdown I've actually been 
rather indulging myself in a nostalgic festival of listening to those things that I loved when I was a teenager. Mm. And it's a great it's a great thing to do to go back to those roots because if you properly synthesize those into your work and you you use them as influences, they're really lovely things because many new listeners will not have heard them and they're uh, so they're nice a nice homage to things that were really good. Somebody reminded me recently of an album and I just used it uh stuck it up on uh, a, a stream on my headphones as I was walking and it's uh, and I just floated home you know listening to it because I was just in in heaven and it was uh, an Alice Cooper record early album called uh, Love It to Death do you know that No I don't Check it out Jesse you you as a as an exponent of the classic rock show which you are so well uh, you would love that record it's a, it's just a ballsy guitar record of early Alice Cooper with the best songs on it it's absolutely fantastic so check it out I'll have it's to check it, it to, out it's funny it it's death. funny Kev since I've been doing the classic rock show obviously you know for for someone of my age I've just turned 30 I I feel like I've got a pretty decent uh you know, knowledge of, of the genre and, I, you know, yeah. the certain things I love. And, you know, but every day I get a message from somebody saying, can you cover this one? And it's just, so, you know, because obviously I wasn't there the first time around. So there's so much, so much yes. stuff I haven't heard. And, you know, it's like, what's your favourite Queen album? Oh, you know, greatest hits, Platinum. You know, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because, so you know, even, that, that's even the generation I am. The, you, well, that's funny because you've got the chops and you've got an understanding of that music. And I know, having worked with you, that you do. But it's funny. It's I just I've not not really wondered about the difference. It, it was for me growing up hearing that music for the very first time as it was being made. So that was what was mm. new music to me. Led Zeppelin, yeah, and, yeah. you know, and Sabbath and uh, Jimi Hendrix. And that was that was stuff that was coming out and and, and Bowie, early Bowie and, and all that. Yeah. And it was actually happening as, as I was growing up. And so quite a lot of what I think about with music is that special uh, privilege of being my age and having had a, a life where that formative those formative years when you're really exploring music coincided with that stuff being there for the first time and sure. i think there's something special about that it resonated in a in a very particular way with the people who were hearing it whereas now it's something of a study exercise you know there's a historical element to it some of it's stuck in aspic and it's like that was the past and it's old music but it mm. wasn't old music to us it was it was what we grew up and that was our that was our inspiration, our muse, you know. Hearing, yeah, hearing that well, stuff. it's kind of the same for me. I mean, I, I I feel quite jealous sometimes of not being born in that period. I don't know whether it's just because I'm a rock singer, and I don't know every rock musician that's my age has has this rhetoric that it's just you know it's a thousand times more difficult these days. Which I'm not sure if it is. There's still bands that make it and do really well, and everything else but I, th I think it was just a different time for music and and you know rock and roll was the mainstream wasn't it and it's um you know i love going back and exploring records like that you know but but you know if somebody says to me you know ne you know do you know this track off this queen album you know sometimes i might not know i know obviously i've, I've actually got some queen records on vinyl but yeah you know you know what it's like just discovering i'm having to yeah. go back and rediscover the stuff that that, that came out then you know <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the difference. Is it is, is it is in the past, and also for us, 
who grew up, uh, us older oldies who grew up with that music being new, it, it changes over the decades as well. I mean, it sort of, it meant a lot, it resonated in a certain way then before music changed. And the way that music is consumed now is different. And I'm not one of these guys who says, oh, it's all rubbish now and all that. But the fact is that mainstream pop music then was a sort of rebellious kind of had a rebellious thing about it it had a fuck you thing about it and it had mm. a and and everything was slightly different every everything there was quite a lot of variety whereas music now seems to me to be more of a soundtrack for shopping or something and yeah. it's more of a you know we're pop music now the mainstream of pop music it, it's all generated by computer operated software which is you know i mean of course there are bands of course there are a lot of great interesting bands and everything but it, they're not inventing, they're not innovating so much as as um, relying on what's gone before. And then, you know, your mainstream pop thing is this, everyone's got the same software to yeah. make it with. Same plug-in, so same sound, software. Yeah, same plug-in, same instrumental sound, same thing. So you don't get this huge variety, you know, whereas I think mu- music should span from the Wombles to Rammstein. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's that, funny you say music that, for shopping because I mean I'm, you know, in terms of uh, I, I feel like I'm sort of quite put, well put together most of the time in terms of my mental health and stuff. But the only time I feel really anxious is if I'm in a shopping mall or something and I don't have my headphones with me because the the music that goes on in those types of places, like if I'm walking around Topman, I mean they have DJs in Topman in London. And it just it just makes me want to have a panic attack, <laughs> and I'm pretty uh, sure that's down to the music, you know. Well, I, I don't know why kids like it. I, I think there maybe there are kids who like it, or maybe it's just somebody thinks it. Somebody, it, I suppose there's somewhere there's somebody analysing the figures, and and realising that it they make more money with it on than with it off. I don't know whether yeah. that's true. Do you know what mm. I mean? But it must be, yeah, because yeah. things like retail. Uh, space and and environment things there's such a science now that i think that pe- there must be somebody analyzing that they can't just think i mean you know but but i agree with you, you must maybe be it's the a heart, musician the heart pumping. maybe maybe <laughs> it's a musician thing i don't know where you i walk into restaurants and shops and I, I i do feel like a grumpy old git i feel like why are you polluting this environment with this horrible shitty music you know mm. um and it's easy to get grumpy about that so uh, yeah i don't i don't like it i I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how young people consume music these days or relate to it. It's very difficult for me to mm. understand that. Um, yeah, yeah. But I do sort of think there is... I, I hang on to the fact that there's something about physics and music, something about the relationship of the frequencies that you hear and the natural world and our own ability to perceive those frequencies that is immutable it's unchangeable and so that is absolutely a, a, at rock at rock bottom music feels good to you or it doesn't and i can't imagine how even young people don't respond when they hear a james brown tune or a fantastic yeah reggae tune or something you can't not respond physically to that you have to it feels good to you to hear it in a way Mm. that it doesn't feel good to hear the latest rihanna regurgitated sort of repetitive 20 seconds of information repeated again and again and different you know it can't feel as good to me 
and I can't imagine it feels as good to people. They just don't. They just don't know. They don't know what they're missing. <laughs> yeah, oh, I agree, Kev. And I mean, I, I was listening. I've been listening to Little Richard all week, and you know, yeah. it's, it's just obviously, uh, you know, may rest in peace and all that. But it's just, you know, what. It's just such power, and it just moves you, doesn't it? The way the way he sings the opening line of, of of Long Tall Sally, you know, you're just like, it just hits you. And there's there's they really don't write songs like that anymore, <laughs> you know. No, you, you don't hear that on Radio One, you know. You don't. I mean, there are modern musicians, I think, who do ha- must have that connection, you know. Um, uh, 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 but I don't hear them very often. I don't hear them mm. very often. I do try and listen to, to new music. I listen to Iggy Pop's, uh, you know, pod uh, on Radio 6. I'm a kind of big fan of that. I try and listen to Radio 6 a bit and, and pick up things. But there's not a lot I like, I must say. There's not a lot I like. I think I kind of get that you, whatever you listen to when you're growing up, kind of stays with you. I, I've mm. heard it said that what you listen to when you're you know between the ages of like 15 and 20 20 that that kind of stays with you it really stays with you you really develop a connection with that and that's definitely been true for me going back to what i listen to at that age now is wonderfully nostalgic i still absolutely love it you know and i think you you get a lot of your maybe you get a lot of fixed opinions about music from from that i don't know i mean i see things on on um facebook sometimes or whatever when a when a famous musician dies and people talk about how much they love love them and mm. it might be someone who i've never heard because i'm too old and i haven't bothered or it might be somebody old or like like when little richard i get the outpouring of love you know mm. there uh, when when like when neil pert died from rush and there was yeah. a, guy, a whole a whole load of people going, oh yeah, he's a genius, he's fantastic, the best drummer. It's start, I, I I get to thinking at that point. Well, if I watch a clip of Neil Peart playing, you know, rest his soul, great guy. I've seen interviews with him. What a lovely bloke and everything else. But I don't get it, and I wonder why where these hardened opinions come from. Because mm. what I hear when I hear Neil Peart play drums is somebody who's technically gifted but unmusical in any way it doesn't move you i'd much rather hear ringo or yeah. john bonham or uh you know or clyde stubblefield play a funk beat behind james brown somebody who's absolutely just gets you straight just that they 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 somehow communicate in a way sure something to you and i think that i just think about that i think about that a lot i think about music a lot in those terms there's a broad spectrum isn't there of musicians there are musicians if you watch a video of snarky puppy you can see people who are extremely technically virtuosic and brilliant at what they do right yes amazing and they're kind of playing for each other and they're playing to impress musicians and they're and they're playing at the top of their game and you think wow they know every scale and mode and and uh, time signature there is they yeah. never play a wrong note they, it's just amazing but then there's keith richard <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and you hear keith richard and you go oh yeah <laughs> that's <laughs> Yeah, well, Chuck Berry or Little Richard, it was a, it's, it comes from the gut, you know. It's like, or you hear Neil Young struggling with one note 
you know, on a Les Paul, and you think, yeah, that's it. And so I'm definitely on that spectrum of I, I appreciate the technical giftedness of, of people who study and people who play like that and, and your Neil Perts and, and your snarky puppies and all that. But I'd much rather hear somebody play something that just cuts through all that and gets straight to the heart. And that's got really little to do with technique it's got much more to do with the character of the person you know it's like the miles davis said you know uh, music is uh, is 10% the note and 90% the motherfucker who plays the note <laughs> well it's totally you true know. kev it's totally true yeah. and what one of the you know one of the things that blew me away about you when i first started playing with you was was that exact thing you're talking about how musical you are how how on it you are with your sounds i mean we can talk about Gutsdammer and briefly, but um, I've spoken about it on the pod um, before, but uh, you're obviously musical director for that, but we had such a diverse range of stuff we had to uh, sort of chop up and play, and it was the way that you can just hear something and know that that's a Telecaster going through an amp with this much gain and, you know, with a bit of slapback delay on it. And you've just got, to me, one of those amazing brains that can... It's just so musical and just always plays the right thing with the right sound at the right time and doesn't overplay and knows when to play. And, you know, and so that's what I've, well, that's, I've learned from you, Kev. That's really nice of you to say. And I think if this... You know, going back to your the title of your pod, which is Staying Alive, I mean, the reason I've stayed alive as a musician is the fact that I have been able to contribute something to, to each musical situation in which I find myself. And, and that's, that's something that I enjoy doing. I enjoy that process. I was just talking about the huge range of music we had to do for Gutterdammerung which yeah, spanned, yeah. you know, Slayer, Black Sabbath and Zeppelin to Slayer and Deftones and all that. And uh, and how much I enjoy recreating that. I've done a lot of that in the studio, like recreating Beatles tunes for television and, mm. for, you know, anything from an Andy Williams arrangement to a, to a sort of, you know, Sex Pistols or whatever. And uh, it's just about... In one way, it's a great thing to develop that skill of being able to hear what music is made of and how to recreate it. And in another way, it can sort of ruin the experience slightly because you're always, <laughs> a, you know, you're, you're always analysing what, what, what music's made of. Uh, so other people go, oh, I love that song. And I'll go, oh, the drum sounds a bit shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally contradicting yourself before, basically, saying it's all about the feel and the sound. And <laughs> Well, it, it, it is. I mean, the best records are... You know, they sound like one thing, don't they? They sound like one thing going on in a room. And you can yeah, recreate yeah. that in the studio if you know what you're doing. I mean, I may, I've made an album a few years ago with a guy called Keziah Jones. He's a, a Nigerian funk songwriter, and he's really big in France. And uh, I, I, I produced four albums for him. But one of the albums we made, you can check it out, it's called Black Orpheus. It just mm. sounds so organic and amazing. It was mixed by um, Russ Elevado, who did the D'Angelo records and all that. Um, yeah. But actually, that record was made in pieces by me and various musicians, sometimes just me and one musician, like me and the bass player or me and the drummer. Or me, and it was done with various overdub, people overdubbing at different times. But it sounds really organic, you know, uh, because if you keep mm. sight of that, you can, you can assemble it that way. But there's nothing like, you know, early 
Motown or Stax records that were all recorded on a few microphones in one room. That does, that does still sound amazing to me. Who yeah, does that I guess now? it depends on the project, project <laughs> doesn't it? You know, I mean, like yeah. when, when we do, when we record with Romances, last time um, we went into the studio, we were recording to tape just because we could and, and we want to sound like a band and we wanted to track it live. And and that was brilliant, you know, brilliant experience for us because, you know, you, it's, it's not very often you get to record onto tape these days. And, um, well, you guys can all really play. I mean, you can all really play. And that's the difference from a, from a guy like me who comes from an era when it was tape. The thing you had to do then is you it made you learn the song. You let you had to perform a song. So if you hear a lot of old classic bands that record to tape, you know where you are in the song by because you all know where you're going. You know it's the second verse. You know you feel that it's the last chorus or whatever. Whereas the mm. way that modern musicians who grow up in a digital era don't ever have to learn a whole song really. You can just do the whole thing in little chunks like we tried to do with Bowie on Absolute Beginner uh, that you know that yeah, motivation yeah. or whatever. You can you can just drop in, you can fix things, you can do it again. And tape um, is a great leveler for m- music because you do capture a vibe that you can't really. It's very difficult to get any other way now. Yeah, yeah. And also, mm. people record in, in bedrooms. The... Go on. Sorry, Kev. I, the the Skype's still a bit dodgy, so sometimes uh, I'm asking you a question like ten seconds later. But I was I was going to ask you actually about the the kind of band dynamic because obviously in Gutter you were the musical director, your musical director for Iggy. And I just wanted to ask about how how you take on that sort of almost middle management responsibility in a in a band and how how that for musicians coming through, how you describe kind of the difference between being a musician in a band and being the MD of a band? Uh well that's an interesting uh, thing I think when I was younger I wasn't psych- so psychologically equipped for that because you, when you're younger in a band uh, young English musicians can 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 fall prey to various things you know uh, overplaying is a good one being competitive you know playing to playing louder than everyone else or, or whatever it is there's it's quite it's quite a lot of pitfalls with it and I think mm. I've experienced most of them uh, especially also you can make yourself fairly unpopular if you try and uh, be an MD or a leader and, and impose your own tastes on everything. And mm. that's not really the way forward. I mean, so the best thing you can do is try and surround yourself with the people who, whereby you don't really have to talk very much about the music. And mm. that's been my experience in later years. If you, although quite often we do have discussions about music, uh, when we get to play together, the important thing is playing together and, uh, and, and also listening. I mean, I think that it's, it's a key to being a band member of any kind, whether you're the leader or whether you're not, is you have to listen to what everyone else is doing and really keep your ears open. And it, play, it pays sometimes the best way you can contribute to, to be, being a band member is to shut the fuck up, you know, just to shut up and listen. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really. <laughs> and I that's, think that's, that's really bit, good advice, actually. <laughs> it, really, it really is. You know, as long it, being in a band is like, um, it's like a sort of... Uh, I, I did actually write something. I, I'd like to read it maybe to your, to your um, listeners. And it's I'd a sort to, of... Um, yeah. It's, I'm writing a book, you see, and there's a little section of the book which I, I'm trying to fire it up. Oh, I can't find it on this laptop. Uh, I'll try and find it while we're talking, but it's a little bit of a sort of um, rules for musicians, a sort of advice list 
of 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 thing of, of a way to be a good band member. And that I, sounds and, uh, brilliant. I've had I've had quite a good feedback from it. I've got another laptop here, and I can I can fire it up here because I'm I'm trying to finish a book, um, and it's got all the scurrilous stories in it that anyone could could want. <laughs> Uh, uh, and uh, I did write this list because it, I was walking one day and I, I, I thought of this list and I thought maybe someone would like to see this list. And I don't know whether they would or not, but I'm trying to find it. I think this is the type of stuff that, that people don't get taught at music school, you know, and, and there's so many, like, you, like I think you were about to say, the kind of bedroom musicians that, you know, are very technically proficient and they learn... They learn to a very high standard at home, but that kind of on-the-job people skills, band experience is something that can't be taught, really, and it's something that just comes with experience of working with different people. It um, does come with experience. It comes from getting it wrong, too, and I've definitely been there where I've got it wrong. I mean, the first time out with with Iggy's band in the in the middle 80s and I took I did this blah 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 record with him and Bowie and it was it was all very you know I was all very full of myself and it was like will you will you be my band leader so I was his band leader uh, for for mm. that early for that tour for blah 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 which was a an incredible thing position to be put in but Absolutely. by the end by the end of it I'd realized that well I didn't really realize until a few years later but I, by the end of it I'd kind of alienated some of the band members and I just hadn't really taken my responsibilities to the point where I was I was completely ready for them so it was just it was just a thing where youth got in the way and that competitive spirit. And I've managed to, second time around with Iggy, repair those relationships because some of the same guys are on board. And, and, um, and I've completely repaired that. And it's, it's mostly because I've maybe calmed down as a person and I don't try and compete with anyone. And also, as a, a band leader, I listen to everyone. And mm. a lot of it's about supporting each other in a brotherly way. I think men are better these days than they used to be about supporting each other and being able to talk to each other if they have problems and that's sure. a very good thing you know if someone has a drinking issue or a you know a drug issue or a relationship breakdown or or whatever i think they get a lot more instead of people just turning their backs nowadays people will i'll encourage people to be kind and listen to each other maybe stage an intervention if someone needs it but yeah. uh, you know but that sort of thing happens and that's a very much more successful recipe for great music and great brotherhood, you know, than is it. So this, what I was talking about is this little list. I found it here. Brilliant. So here's, here's, here's little 16 little one sentence kind of uh, points about how to be a good band member. Number one, turn up on time, reasonably sober and smelling good. <laughs> number two, <laughs> number two, communicate. start. Start a WhatsApp group and use it. Three, learn the songs before you get to rehearsal. <laughs> Four, help others loading and unloading their gear. If you don't have people to do it for you. Five, make sure your gear works. Bring all your own cables, plectrums, strings, batteries, etc. Six, if you're the band leader, listen. Also, if you're not the band leader, listen. <laughs> Number seven. Sometimes the best way you can contribute to the music is by shutting the fuck up. Brilliant. Eight. Don't play louder than the singer. 
Nine. When it's your solo, turn it up. Love it. Ten. Don't overplay. Nobody cares about your amazing technique but you. <laughs> Eleven. I'm glad you're getting a kick out of these. Eleven. I love enjoy it. it. Enjoy it. It's only music. Twelve. Keep some money in your pocket for lunch and enough for the cunt who's forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Thirteen. Don't get fucked up until after the gig. Good advice, that one as well. Fourteen. Roadies and Tex are people. Love them and they will love you back. Fifteen. Don't be a twat to other bands. Give respect. And 16, dress sharp. I love it. <laughs> such, that's such good advice. Do you know what? That's my commandments, yeah. Immediately sprung to mind there, Kev. And I'm sure he won't mind me saying, because it was so funny, but we, when we were doing Gutter Dammering, uh, there was a guy called Jamie Humphreys covering you. And he's a great yeah. guitar player. Yeah, and, he is. Uh, he's amazing. And uh, he came in to the first day of rehearsal and as, as everybody knows, he's a massive gearhead. You know, he does he does videos for a Lick Library and he's a mess of Boogie and Dorsey and music magazine. He's a freak, yeah, yeah. You know, and he turned up to rehearsal the first day and he was bragging about this new guitar system he'd had built for him by this engineer. And it was a rack <laughs> about, it was about up to my chest. It was massive, yeah, it, this thing, wasn't it? it With was, ped yeah. pedals of, pedals of different, uh, sort of trays yeah, of different pedals and... yeah. And this cable that was like, you know, six inches thick uh, that plugged into this <laughs> other thing. And he just plugged his guitar in and it didn't work. And it was the first <laughs> <laughs> And he was, he was fuming, wasn't he? It was so funny. And, uh, you know, got you, really you, you, just plugged, you know, you just plugged straight into your pedal board into the Black Star and off you went. You know, it was just. <laughs> and I love that, bless him. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's funny, of course. But, the, you know, it, I, I used to get frustrated when, uh, you know, there's a guitarist I used to play with for years and uh, he shall remain nameless. But whenever he yeah. turned up to any gig, it was like, have you got a cable? I need a jack, yeah. jack. You know, or and you just think, well, what, man, you know, just turn up, have one in your bag. What, how, how difficult can it be? And then he's got yeah, people yeah. running around resenting him already for having, you know, not having his own gear and all that. So I do think that those, those little things are they're just small things that make life easier. Just turn up with your, keep your shit together. You know, it's people really like it when you turn up, your gear's all working, you know the songs, you know, and, uh, and you've got money for lunch and all, all those things that make, make everything go with a swing you know because be totally. people think being in a band and being like being on holiday all the time but it really isn't as you know it really isn't mm. it's not it's not so glamorous there are glamorous moments and then there are hours and days of of waiting around and traveling and boredom and being fed up and all the rest of it so you have it to seems, be able it to seems cope obvious, with both Kev, those some of them you know some of the things you've said sound obvious but to the to the outside looking in people listening to this who might not have worked in music there is such a kind of there's so many diverse attitudes that musicians have and you know it the, the thing about learning the songs i mean it really is a thing you know i mean i've i've got bands that i run and you know sometimes yeah. you know 
people just turn up not knowing the songs and it just it it's, makes the whole thing pointless you know because it's, it is pointless it's a waste of time I mean you're paying for mm. a rehearsal room you know maybe equipment hire transport and everything else you just I mean rehearsals are about polishing the band and getting ready for a performance they're not about learning the songs you know when I've got a tour on literally my the Bowie tour I, I would have turned up in Burbank in a rehearsal room to play for the first time with Jerry and Carmine and Alan and at the end of the day they're going man you know everything and it's like it's such a joy people go people really appreciate it uh, mm. and you, um, but they don't what they don't see is I've spent the previous six weeks for two or three hours a day going through the songs in my studio junking pedals l- using different settings j- changing guitars you just just getting everything so i know when this song comes up what i'm reaching for and how to make it work and that that's a huge that you know it's it's you do get time usually as a musician you get time to prepare don't waste it it's it's really valuable and people love it you get a really good reputation if you turn up knowing your shit you know sure and generally the higher up the ladder you go in terms of gigs you know the the more people are on it, I find, you know, and, and the nicer people are generally and um, easier to work true. with, you know, and that's why they get the gigs. And, you know, it, it, I, I mean, that's I'm, true. I'm, I'm exactly the same, Kev, you know, if I've got a gig like, like when we did the gutter damming thing, you know, I spent so much time prepping that and learning all the stuff. And, um, you know, because for me, yeah. when, when you walk out on that stage, you don't want to be worrying whether you can remember the second verse or not. It has to be in your subconscious. Definitely point, not. You know? that, yeah, exactly. What you're trying to do by the time you hit the stage for the first time is you're trying to perform. You know, you want to you want to forget the all uh, the, 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 the you know, what chords are we, are we playing and, and what's coming up next in a song? You know all that. So you're just trying to get it to the point where people are really feeling your performance. And that's that's the joy. That's the joy of it. That got to Dameron thing's a great example because everybody in that was were really pulled their weight, didn't they? I mean, there was nobody mm. who didn't. That uh, was it was great. By the time we did the first gig, it was all really sorted and, and really amazing. And that's how it should be. I mean, what I get mm. from touring with Iggy Pop now is obviously he's like he's seventy two years old, you know, and and um, he's been doing this for fifty years plus and uh and some of the people who work with him now go back 30 years with him and uh it's just such a kind of and also the crew some crew members too you know and sound people and it's such a family it just becomes a family obviously we have the luxury of it being iggy he can he gets the best hotels and we get good flights and we get fed well and we have good you know everything's kind of done on a, on a quite a nice level and there's that but there's the team of people that work together really check each other out in the old days i might have done a tour in the mid 80s where there were people on the crew who i didn't know their names now mm. that was my fault you know but i didn't i didn't really check them as fully rounded people they were just sort of oh that guy does that you know he might be a driver or something who i only see for 10 minutes a day but these days i would have a meal with that guy you know they we we, we're all we all interact together everybody there's no ego crap you know and it's Mm. ego crap that gets in the way of of uh of music being good i think when you get when you you know you if you do get to work with people who who haven't got that kind of team spirit, it, they st- they stand out. It does it jars. It doesn't it doesn't do well for the music. It never does. We do this section called one night only, which is where we ask you to pick 
uh, a super group that you would be in for one night only is the se- little section Ooh. we do at the end, the end of the pod. Uh, living or dead, who would be in your band? Oh, my God. That's really difficult. I've always wanted <laughs> to play with, with Bob Dylan. Um, wow. I, I, I like uh, Levon Helm, who was the drummer and singer in the band. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love uh, Joni Mitchell's guitar playing and singing. Uh, oh, my God, that's such a hard thing. Wow, that's so So hard. it sounds like quite a folky band. <laughs> it could be, a, could be a folky band or it could be a hard rock band. I mean, I love playing with Iggy, actually. Um, you know, he, he is, he's, uh, he's pretty much uh, uh, a god to me still, even, even standing behind him uh, so many times as I have playing gigs. It's still so exciting. Uh, you've seen it up close. It's, it's absolutely electrifying, and it teaches young young performers how to do it. You know, I've yeah, I've always absolutely. wanted to play with. Uh, I don't know. Oh my god, there's so many. Yeah, Levon Helm. Who'd play bass? I don't know. Andy Fraser from Free. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, that's a that's a hard question. I might have to write <laughs> that one down and send it to you. There's so many musicians who I, who I who I love. You know. Well, so that's many. brilliant, Kev. It's just a yeah. great great insight into your psyche. And thank you so much for sharing what you have today. And um, hopefully, I see you when this is all over, mate. We can have a well, have man. A we, what up. we need is a big. We need a big party when this is all over. I literally want to fuck everybody I know now. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that mate <laughs> thanks Jesse so there we have it for the first series of Staying Alive thank you to Kev and as usual thank you all for listening for more info on Kevin and to buy his solo album Run visit kevin-armstrong.com We'll be back very soon with another series, but until then, why not get in touch with suggestions for guests at stayingalivepod at gmail.com. This was a Jesse Smith production. Music by Neil X, Mark Garfield, and me. I so bloody hope we can see each other in the flesh soon. But until then, keep creative and stay alive.